Hi everyone, welcome to this new episode of Let's Chat Politics. I am Elliot, your host, and today I have Charlotte as my guest. Welcome, Charlotte. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very good, thank you. How are you? Yes, not too bad, thank you, not too bad. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming with us. Charlotte is a student in film studies at King's. Before we start, can you please give us a little introduction of yourself? No worries. Well, Elliot said most important, but uh, yeah, hi, uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm a third year film studies student here at King's. I do a lot of photography on the side, but I love film. I love the history that goes through with it. I'm half French, half English, and yeah, I've been living in London. I, I love it, so uh, it's been great. <laughs> well, you brought us perfectly on today's topic, which is the interaction between cinema and politics, historical events, propaganda, everything that goes with it. So the plan for today is to go through major historical events especially throughout the 20th century but also more recently and uh, explain how cinema shaped it and how it was portrayed maybe you can give us a bit more detail because you're the expert here oh no <laughs> well it's really interesting because film has only been around for about 100 years maybe 150 years so obviously when we're talking about history then that's as much as we can do so yeah we're going to be talking today a lot about World War II but we're going to kind of go through the history after that and how cinema is both a reaction to the history that's around it but also participant in shaping the history as well so it's a really powerful medium that has a lot to say about how we can look at history okay so what is the first uh, time period we're going to talk about today okay so we're actually going to start off with post-world war ii cinema elliot and i kind of picked two topics and two movements that are really kind of crucial understanding the sentiment that was going on post-world war ii in the world in general so that's italian neorealism and film noir in film studies we tend to talk a lot about the aesthetics of it but there is a really important historical element to them that kind of can go in really nicely to how we look at attitudes towards gender and class that happened straight after um, World War II. Amazing. So, first of all... So, yeah, Italian Neorealism is a movement that happened straight after World War II, um, obviously in Italy. Uh, <laughs> I would have never guessed. No, really? No idea. <laughs> Basically, with the fall of, you know, kind of... The government and the sentiment after Italian uh, Italy was left pretty much in ruins. They had a very weak uh, cinema that happened after Cinecista, which is their main kind of film industry, completely collapsed. So film directors didn't actually have that much to go off with. It was either, you know, work with quite propagandistic style films, or if they wanted to do their own thing, they had very limited budgets. So what meant for that in Italian neorealism is that, you know, you had very kind of stripped down everything was shot on location as opposed to in very lavish studios they had um they used non-professional actors they picked you know kids off the streets and they were the actors for it just right so it's basically making a movie out of nothing when the entire industry was destroyed by world war ii absolutely but what's interesting about the fact that it was made out of nothing is that then it's off the real it's not about the staged and that's when neo-realism comes in is that a lot of these films they're very slow paced because it's shot on location they're not hiding the fact that you know there's maybe a, a destroyed building in the background or a run down area um even, you know, the kids on the streets, they're not getting very staged or very glamorous films that you would get in, let's say, 1930s Hollywood or anything like that. It's completely stripped down and it shows the Italy and the sentiment after World War II that they they'd pretty much lost everything. So it's very... Realistic. Realistic, yeah. It's not in any way sugarcoating life as it was kind of before the war or anything like that. Which so is, it's kind of like a 
post-war rebirth of cinema. Exactly, yeah. But I think what's interesting about it is that real, you know, the rebirth of, of reality, of not pretending that everything is fine. So Right. Um, And what, what kind of stories are they portraying in these movies? There's one that we talk about a lot about in film, and it's actually, I really recommend it. Uh, it's called Bicycle Thieves. I won't pronounce it in Italian because I will absolutely butcher the name. <laughs> But uh, it's a lot about classified. Uh, it's about a guy who owns a bike. It's based in Rome, in especially, you know, post-war Rome, so war-torn very much. Much, but it's about he's unemployed and he gets his bike stolen and it's kind of you know showing his daily life being unemployed being in a very kind of low economic class after the war and struggling to provide for the people around him it's actually quite a sad story and what's interesting is that in the end he actually ends up stealing a bike so it's that whole cycle of him being seen as a very moral character all throughout but at the end the fact that he is in such a hard you know economic situation that he ends up doing the same wrongdoings that happened to him everything post-war I mean color kind of comes in into the 50s and then right. there's a whole aesthetic thing about that but all of these even then if color was out it was so expensive to buy color film stock that they wouldn't be able to yeah especially so. in a context where oh, yeah. cinema was not thriving exactly economically speaking it had to be black and white okay, right. it had to be black and white speaking of black and white though I think film noir has a lot to say about that if you want to move yeah, on to yeah of course go yeah, ahead film noir is, is a really interesting movement um, so this is basically happening on the other side of the Atlantic in America mostly but we do have film noir in other countries but it's mostly America that it's seen once again there is this debate about the kind of aesthetic qualities because it's got a very distinctive visual style I mean if you think of film noir I think everyone can imagine you know the kind of Venetian shades and everything like that but to keep it historical and political there's a lot of research that's been done within film studies that um, film noir has a lot to say about gender but also at uh, the beginning of the cold war and kind of the othering that americans have towards russian society so there's a lot that can be said through um through the films in there about how we see it so propaganda as well Kind of, in a way, but it's more, I think... There's an example I can give. I mean, it's a great film called um, Double Indemnity, and it's a lot more... They do talk about Cold War, but they also talk a lot about the men that had lost a lot during the war, a lot of soldiers returning back. The roles of femme fatales in, uh, that we always hear through, that comes through film noir. And it's because you have these women in it that become villains, which is unheard of in cinema before. And the reason for that is, in a way, it's a sort of emasculation that men had when they finished the war, uh, they came back, and women had been in the workforce for the first time and they were earning their own money and, well, they didn't have full independence but it was the beginning of an independence through that and so many uh, scholars have also argued that in a way the women and also the other men uh, apart from the protagonists can be seen as others and these others represent Soviet society. It's this now fear in a lot of um, film noirs, this distrust between people that kind of shows this fear, basically, of society, what it was before, and now this kind of fall into chaos that could, in brackets, happen uh, to come and kind of challenge traditional American society. We mentioned propaganda. Yeah. I suppose that um, the period of Cold War was... Quite intense with Intense that. So, in terms yeah. of propaganda. Absolutely. I mean, we have Soviets. Uh, Soviet propaganda has been around for a long time. You know, we've had quite early examples of um, Soviet uh, propaganda coming in, but it's not just happening there. I'm focusing on that because we studied it a lot, but, you know, it starts off in even the 30s and it kind of goes through into Cold War and it does change. But one thing when you have to consider when you look at Soviet propaganda is that for the kind of, you know, the very communist theories around at the time was that cinema was a great way to reach loads of people and, you know, people were watching it either in the cinemas or they could 
television wasn't around, but it was a very it was a medium that was very easy to communicate to people. So a lot of the films were heavily funded by the Soviets' governments, and a lot of directors were kind of you know in direct relation with basically Soviet politicians. So it meant yeah, that and because it was a young media as well. Yeah, absolutely. People didn't know what to expect, you know, so they could use that. The governments could use that to their advantage to like transmit clear messages to the population. Absolutely. And even then, if you think about it, I mean, film is something that is it's physical. You know, you can move it around to other countries. So imagine now you look at news, you know, relations nowadays of, let's say, videos of strikes or drone strikes. They can be shared all around the world. Obviously, a bit more hard then. But the point being, yeah, film is something physical. So you can travel around with it and you can show other countries as well what, what your country's going up to, how the government is doing so great or not so great. Um, so propaganda to show the world um, a different image of what the Soviet Union was like at the time, yeah. but also propaganda within the Soviet Union for the population to create themselves an image of the country that is not necessarily true. Absolutely, we have uh, a lot of films where they become very optimistic of, and in you know, in a in a quite nice way. There's a film that we studied called, and it's it's good. It's called A, a Man with a Movie Camera. And it basically depicts Moscow as a very bustling city and it has a lot of allegories to humans in there kind of being cogs in a machine. But not in a kind of derogatory way, in a way that's quite empowering to them. It shows, you know, the whole message of the film in a way can be seen as, you know, you're all part of this big machine and we're going to make it move forwards. And I think that is quite a good allegory for keeping people being like, wow you know, I'm interested in this. I want to support my country and do everything. So, especially in the Soviet context. Um, but we have, you know, Soviet cinema is one example. We had the same thing happening in Britain as well during World War II once again. Um, but there was a lot of films. There's one called London Can Take It. And it was kind of showing, you know, people going into the underground and all of, it was a documentary style, but a lot of narration of the background, very uplifting the London population, congratulating them on their efforts. And, you know, these films were kind of dispatched semi-purposely to a lot of the opposite countries uh, that were adversaries to them. Just showing that England... UK is doing great. Yeah, UK is doing great. <laughs> all, all things considered, you know, it yeah. looked like they were doing great. A lot you know, a lot better than people would think they were. So it can right. be very useful in the context of international relations. It's deceitful, but it does show a message that can be quite influential. Just something for you guys. Um, all the movies will be in the caption of this episode on check Spotify. Check them out. Please check, check them, them out. out. Yeah. Gonna... <laughs> I'm going to ask Charlotte to give me a full list and then I'll put all the names so you guys can find them. Um, I'm sure some of them are on platforms yeah. like Netflix. Or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, some, we'll be talking about another one coming up in like soon, but there yeah. are a lot that can be easily accessed I think even Kings if you guys are King students listening to this they have a platform where you can watch most of them so some oh, of I didn't know that oh, film studies kids we get privileges oh my <laughs> so it's only for film studies I don't know I think I think it's called Canopy that's what we use oh. but apparently it's Kings so I'm pretty sure you guys can access well, it as well if it's not for everyone just get a friend that is in film studies and then get their password and it's we're just... cool people yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you have anything to add on propaganda as well because propaganda is very very interesting yep. do you think like do you think Hollywood movies were also absolutely? Oh my god! Propaganda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even um, I saw like a, an article recently about and more like going forward quite a lot now, but it was talking about Top Gun. Mm. Um, and Top Gun is really interesting because it kind of came in during the Reagan era, but it was really heavily funded by the U.S. Army. Top Gun. Top Gun. Yeah, they like they the U.S. Army gave a lot of uh, fighter jets, a lot of things. They gave a lot of access to filmmakers to make. And in a way, it makes sense because Top Gun completely, that was their one condition. You know, you kind of have to glorify the army life um, and show it as it is. And shocker, the enlistment for uh, soldiers in the army after that skyrocketed. They did a great job because they actually managed to pull in so many Americans to want to join the army. Right after the film was released. Yeah. 
Because it made, I mean, you know, you look at you look at Tom Cruise yeah, in it. It like, looks, oh, yeah, this is a he's cool. He's a hero. He looks so cool. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, so it works. It's not just Soviet. It's everything. But yeah, America has a very strong case for it being quite uh, propagandistic when it comes to stuff like that. It does. You know, Top Gun's a great example of that. When sometimes they release a movie, and then when you look at the stats, you have an increase in the names of babies that were born at the same time no, be- I- <laughs> because they named them after the characters. Like when a celebrity is getting very famous. They have an increase. Yes, exactly. So like uh-huh. like Adele, for example. There's so many kids that are like 13 that name Adele. Adele. <laughs> because, yeah, or like, I could find many examples like that online, but it's crazy how, in general, the media and what, you know, is shown on the media shapes the way people are going to live and take decisions. Absolutely. Like, yeah. naming, naming a kid is something that's going to stay forever. Important. It's very, it's quite important. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Oh, well, even like, I was seeing a thing, I'm doing kind of research right now on Star Wars. And I think I saw a stat where it says that in Australia, the like you know when you write down your religion for a port, Jedi is now <laughs> is now is now a natural uh, category that people have been so many people have been calling themselves Jedi. So it's officially recognized by the Australian government. I have no idea, but it's now a, people a lot of people <laughs> now have themselves called Jedi's, which is cool. It's crazy. It's pretty cool. So there's like a whole now. I think they recognize High Valyrian mm. and some other you know languages that come from films. They recognize it. It's it's insane. Do you think today propaganda is? Still a thing in cinema. I think. Oh, ooh, I like that you, question. Yeah, it's ah. interesting because because you can see a movie literally. You just go online and just type whatever movie streaming, and then you can just watch it like Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah, it's easy. At access. the time, it's more of a thing where people go once in a while. Do you think that today people can get that easily influenced by movies? I don't know of any recent propaganda films that I would really, you know, kind of consider the same way I would consider those post-war ones. I think as well, like, going back to 1930s, 1940s, you know, that American cinema, it is so idealistic. It is, you mm-hmm. know, it is propaganda because it's selling the American dream, like you said. You know, it's bringing people in, it shows this glamour and glitz. And I don't know if we see that nowadays just because I think the society that we're in now is quite pessimistic. And yeah, and also very movie. diverse. And people yeah, are aware absolutely. that what you see in the movies is not something real. Exactly. It's... Have you seen this footage of like, was it the, what, the first movie, was it Les Frères Lumière? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people ran when they yes, saw the train because they thought exactly. it was real. <laughs> it's this video. I think you can find it on YouTube. It's like the footage of people seeing the movie live and it's a train and, and they just run away because they think the train is going to go out of the screen. It's insane. <laughs> It's crazy because nowadays, like, you would never imagine nowadays, something like that happening. There's an explosion on stage and everyone's like, wow. And it's so realistic as well. Oh, yeah. Way more realistic than a black and, and white footage of, like, a train. I mean, that was early, early cinema. That yeah. was, like, the first few... And we look at how far we've come in it now, the fact that we've got animation coming in. We've been able to, you know, through, like... I think Jurassic Park was the first um, CGI film. And they, I mean, they got dinosaurs on screen. How crazy is that? Yeah. You know, you can completely change... You can make history on screen when it comes to that, so it's it's really cool. So to answer your question about propaganda, though, you've you've also I don't I don't know if I would um I'm sure there is someone I think some countries that you know still have quite a censored regime will definitely have propaganda films, but I don't think nowadays I think that films are becoming more and more globalized that it's quite hard to make a propaganda film. And so nowadays, let's move on to um today's cinema, recent period, 21st century. Yeah, cinema and globalization are intertwined absolutely as well. yeah i mean nowadays before 
for quick historic context, you know, we had very distinct industries. It was kind of, you know, we had America, which was the main one. And then we had Europe. We had each country had their own different rules. And then, you know, we have Bollywood, which is huge as well. And Nollywood in Nigeria, which is also very big. But each country had their very own distinct industries, Hollywood dominating every kind of industry having their own things and because language can be such a barrier when it comes to making films it's really hard to do that but nowadays because the world is so globalized it's opened up a whole new platform for really cool films that have come from so many different countries to exist so, so. what does a globalized movie look like so i sneak peek i actually also to watch the film so we could talk about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i did watch this movie last night before the podcast um it's called snowpiercer um so there's okay For reference, if you guys are looking it up on Netflix now, there's two versions. There's the television series and the film. I haven't seen the television series. I'm not I've sure seen, I've seen it. Is it, it good? Is it? Uh, it was very Netflixy. Okay. You know oh, yeah, what I, I know mean what by you that? Mean. I know what you It's mean. It's like, you could see that it was growing from the movie. You could see that the, the OG idea was from the movie. Right. Yeah, of course, completely. Yeah, well, this is... Watch the film then, because the film is definitely good. Um, but what's really interesting about this film, it's directed by Bong Joon-ho, who is Korean. Uh, but the actual producing team is mostly American and UK-based. It was mostly filmed in Czechoslovakia, but it's based off of a French book. So you've got at least five countries implicated in the production of this of this film. So, you know, you've got an international cast that speak multiple languages. So you've got Chris Evans, who's our protagonist, yeah. who's American. And then, you know, you have Korean language in there as well, which is a tribute to Bong Joon-ho and his obvious, you know, kind of cultural and... Um, you know, country heritage. So you get that mirroring of, you know, once again, we don't see the production side of it, but we see the final product. And, you know, it's one of the first films, well, not one of the first films, but a film that's very kind of seamless in the fact that there are multiple languages being spoken within it. And it does show, you know, a wide range of people. The film itself, just to give a context so you guys know what the film is about, if you don't want to watch it, uh, <laughs> Crash Course Story, it's about, it's in the future, where planet Earth freezes over and it gets so cold and there's everyone on this one train, which is the Snowpiercer, that basically circles around the world. The people on the train are the only survivors, the only humans yeah. of, like, humanity. Everybody else is dead. Yeah, these are the final people. And within the train, there's a hierarchy, right? Yes, within the train, so at the bottom you have the people that just survived on, but they're pretty much slaves, you know, they're eating these disgusting, like, insect-paste foods, they're... You know, they basically see no natural light. This guy gets his arm chopped off, frozen as punishment. They're basically not treated as humans, but as the film goes on, they go up the train um, to get to the front to try and, you know, it's a, basically a revolt about what's been going on, the conditions that they're living in. And they realize that, you know, most of the people that live on there, when you get higher up, they live, you know, an absurdishly lavish... You know, like, the, what's it called? Uh, the Capital and the Hunger Games? Yeah. Same thing. Same Completely, thing. like, over-the-top lavish lifestyle. It's like, why do you need that? Like, they have, a, I think, like, a Manny Petty salon on the train. It's like, you guys are all dying and you guys are worried about your nails, really? Yeah. So it's it's very... but It's really interesting in that way that you get people that are completely at the bottom and at the top you have this just absurd, absurdishly lavish lifestyle, so... Yeah, and, um, and just like the Hunger Games, it's also showing a class struggle. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. It's completely the same thing. You know, you get these really... I think it makes a great commentary. It makes these very tough distinctions between, you know, rich and poor. And the fact, I think, what's interesting compared to The Hunger Games is it's a train. So it's only going in one way. It's not, you know... And the fact that they're progressing through the chain up these 
and it's very hard. They always try to get pushed back down. It's this kind of a judgment or a sort of critique on class and classism that the bottom is always going to try and remain pushed at the bottom. So, it, you know, I think that people can really read this as quite a political piece on how it comments on classism in society. So. Yeah. And it also talks about climate change. Yeah. Of course. I mean, it free- Earth freezes over. You would never expect with, climate- with global warming. But um, Earth freezes over and it does, you know, these are the final survivors. And I think... Nowadays, if you go onto Netflix, there are so many disaster films where you have people that are dying of natural catastrophes. natural catastrophes or just dystopian societies. It's really had an emergence. And there's been so much research that has been done that, you know, it is this kind of feeling now of, of impending doom because of what's been going on with global, global warming. Uh, right. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for being with us today. Thank you, Elliot. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> no, of course, of course, I really enjoyed this episode. A bit different from what we were doing, but it just shows that, you know, the show is about everything. So if you guys have anything you want to talk about, come on the show, text us on Instagram at KCL Politics, and I would be more than glad to have uh, people over to talk about anything related to history or politics. You can, of course, follow us on Instagram. You can check the caption of this episode and you'll find the movies we talked about today. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Um, See you next week. And yeah, have a good week, guys.